0: When you're junior, it feels a bit daunting to propose an anaesthetic plan to the anaesthetist that you might be working with, but I always think really highly of that when I see that.
1: A month of anaesthesia, and it had neon lights on it for me. It was clearly what I wanted to do. It might be what you want to do, but just exactly how do you go about doing it?
0: Through that clinical judgment that, you know, as the anaesthetist is about to press the emergency buzzer, that's not the time to ask questions.
2: and welcome to another episode of Behind the Mask. This time around, we're looking at the specialty of anaesthesia, what you can do to get into an accredited registrar course, what you can expect, and what you ought to consider beforehand according to current practising anaesthetists. I'm your host, Chris Mullin. What you'll hear in this episode is my conversation with two qualified specialists whom I spoke with together, Dr. Susie New. She's president of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and naturally an anaesthetist herself. My other speaker is Dr. Chris Bolton, who has over 20 years' experience as an anaesthetist and is also a MIPS Clinico legal advisor. Both of them looked at other disciplines before they arrived at anaesthesia, so they've got some insight for how practitioners like yourself might feel. This episode really has a lot of pertinent information for junior practitioners who are considering what specialty they want to do, and simple advice about how to make yourself attractive as a candidate, especially for anesthesia, but the advice is applicable to other disciplines. The materials provided are for educational purposes only. Whilst we take all reasonable care of preparing these materials, including the accuracy of the information supplied, we do not accept any liability whatsoever arising out of the use or reliance of the information provided. Let's dive into it. I'm speaking in this opening part with Dr. Susie New. Thank you both for joining us. I know we're joined today by Chris Bolton, who's also an anaesthetist. Before I throw to Chris to explain a little bit about himself, do you want to tell us a bit about your personal background and how you arrived at the specialty of anaesthesia?
0: So I, I studied here at Melbourne, at Melbourne University. I originally applied for surgical training, and I thought my heart was set on being a surgeon, but at the end of my I think, intern year, I did my rotation in anaesthesia and I thought this is where I want to be. So I changed over and got into the anaesthesia program, did a paediatric fellowship at the kids' hospital, which is where I met Chris. And, um, and I suppose then I left Australia and I went and worked in Fiji for a couple of years and in Cambodia for about a year and then came back to Australia via Darwin. And, uh, and then in conjunction with all of that, found myself in this role as president of the ASA. Chris,
2: did you have the pleasure of teaching or working with Susie previously?
1: Yeah, our courses or paths crossed uh at the Royal Children's Hospital um, when Susie was a fellow there that was uh, we were just worked out It's about thirteen years ago now um so yes, have had the pleasure of working with sue she's um she's a, an excellent uh practitioner and also a fabulous person
0: so are you, Chris <laughs> Thank
1: you so much
2: chris uh, You've obviously got quite a bit of experience in anesthesia. Do you want to tell us a bit about
1: how you know you arrived at this point yeah that's a that's an interesting one a bit like uh, Susie um, in my intern year I anesthesia hadn't crossed my mind and I was going to go and do physician training because I'd worked with a surgical team uh, and although my personality was very surgical that I decided I was going to be a physician but then I did a month of anesthesia and it had neon lights on it for me it was clearly what I wanted to do and then began the whole process about well it might be what you want to do but just exactly how do you go about doing it
2: yeah I imagine that's a question some of our listeners are asking is what can they do now to you know find themselves in this career and I imagine that's part of the uh, the ASA's uh, task is it Susie to to guide some people into the occupation or is that exclusively for the college
0: well uh Oh, interesting that you're asking, very timely. So we're absolutely here to support everybody in the profession, whether they're already on the training program or retired, um, you know, throughout their career. So we have recently opened up membership for people trying to get onto the program because we realise this is now quite a stressful time in people's lives and we're looking at, you know, ways that we can support yeah, you
2: know, doctors, pre-vocational doctors. Hmm. I've, interesting that we've got two professionals who study here at a very different time. Chris, you would have acquired your fellowship uh, over 20 years ago and Susie, yours more recently. I mean, uh, perhaps, Chris, you can just speak to this uh, first. Uh, can you tell us, when you applied for your fellowship, w- was it really difficult or competitive to get in then or was it relatively easy
1: compared to now? Yeah, no, look, and I don't know compared to now, but anaesthesia has always been very competitive to get into. Um, And one of the beautiful things about anaesthesia, it's always been a very equal split between males and females. So uh, it was open to all comers, so always competitive. And then, of course, the exams were – it was a – a substantial area of culling, with with only low percentages finally making it through. I, I don't know things how things have changed. Susie, you'd, you'd have a better handle on that now, but I can't imagine things have changed a great deal, have they?
0: So, of course, I think the college would have the latest statistics on this. But from what I hear, it's that for every anaesthesia post, there's about four applicants now and I think there's been a growth in the number of jobs for unaccredited registrars as well there was a phase I was I think just in the last of it that they had an unaccredited registrar positions and then they made a I think a move to remove those positions but now we're seeing more of those coming through
2: when you say four applicants per position is that is that just the register? Uh, sorry the accredited positions or is that unaccredited and accredited positions
0: I think the college would, again, have the latest on that, but I, I think it's for um, unaccredited and accredited positions.
2: Okay, that is... Uh,
0: yeah, I but don't... I wouldn't quote me on that. It could it could just be for mm-hmm. the accredited jobs. And I think it would also... Uh, my impression talking from people, talking with people from all around Australia, is that it, it does vary from state to state as well.
2: well. Susie, what would be your advice to someone now who had their heart set on anaesthesia?
0: Uh,
2: in- if they can't go down the accredited path or they're unsure if they should even, you know, try that or it's not available where they are, I mean, how do they go about, you know, trying to move into that specialty?
0: Uh, I think there's all the usual advice about, you know, being trying to get good referees and trying to build up your CV. And I definitely see CVs much better now than, you know, when when I had to apply to get onto the program. Um, And my advice for people who are trying to get on is don't give up. And I think my more poignant advice maybe is to find a referee that will back you 100%. You need a glowing referee report. And part of, I think, obtaining that is going to someone, asking them, will they be a referee? Would they be prepared to you know, provide a very good reference? And if not, why not? Where are your opportunities for improvement? And I think that's what we often look for when providing referees and doing the job interviews is you're looking for someone that is trainable. And it's a very difficult and vulnerable position to be in. But I think the people who I have given that advice to and it's worked for them, have you know, I'm not saying that's what it, all it took to get onto the program, but I, I think there's a lot of humility to, to, to bring to that conversation.
2: Uh, Chris, uh, you've probably been on the side where you've uh, been one of these uh, mentors or referees that people come to. Has that been part of your, you know, role as a senior anaesthetist?
1: Yes, it has. And in fact, I'm a mentor for uh, a trainee in the oceanic uh, stream at the moment. He's uh, currently in Samoa. Um, so yes, I think the, it, that mentor role is very important. And just harking back to what Susie was saying about what are the things that you can do to help yourself. I always say to people, find the hospital that you're most likely uh, most likely to be successful at and go and talk to the head of the department and say, This is what I want to do tell me how to make myself attractive to you. What would you like me to do um, that will improve my chances? Um, And the the underhanded side of that is once people start to provide you advice, they become invested in you. And if you then provide them with um, reports on how you're going, they will see you as being proactive and their, their, um, they will be flattered that you have listened to them. And, and I think that that's a very sneaky way of, of getting a foot in the door is, is to attach yourself uh, if you can. Yeah,
2: you know, I think that's a very good point. I think once you ask someone, they do become invested in that person's development. I think any manager for perhaps any uh, discipline out there, uh, even outside the medical field, would find that's true for, for any employee coming to speak to them.
0: I'd say that also applies for registrars who are looking for consultant posts. And, you know, definitely, you know, that that talk with the boss and saying, you know, I'm thinking about doing a fellowship, I'm thinking about X, Y, Z interest areas, I'd really like to come back after my fellowship and get a job here as a consultant. You know, which of these areas do you think would best suit the needs of the department? Did
2: you have that rather difficult conversation with one of your uh, seniors, Susie, when you were, uh, you know, looking to get into anaesthesia?
0: When I first got onto the program or when I was coming back as a consultant?
2: I guess both. Oh, well, no, I mean, before you were a consultant, yeah.
0: Yeah, look, I I mean, again, I think it was a bit easier in my day to get onto the program. Um, so I, I, I remember um, ringing up the head of surgical training at my hospital and saying, I, I don't think I'm going to go through the surgical training program next year and being sworn at. And then the next conversation I had was to the anaesthetic department director saying, I, I want to change from the surgical training program to the anaesthesia program. And I had a few very key senior, I had a lovely senior anaesthetist who then Helped me navigate my way to an anaesthesia job. So yes, it was a very key key conversation. And then likewise, when I was coming back to Melbourne as a consultant after all my time overseas, it was you know a matter at this stage of finding the hospital which I thought I would best fit in with, and also seeing that my you know, what I the skills that I brought um, whether that would be useful to the department. And I hope they found that useful. I'm still employed there. So. <laughs> I think that is a good sign.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I imagine that's a difficult thing to do to choose the hospital or to say this is the appropriate one for me because you you don't get a chance to work at too many before you sort of make that decision. I mean, did you find yourself on rotation around sort of, you know, regional Australia before you settled somewhere?
0: Yeah, well, I, I I I always knew that. Say, I wanted to go and work overseas. So, I you know I really loved my my training rotations in Victoria, and then the hospital where I trained at the one of the intensivists had partnered up with Alice Springs Hospital for the um, ICU rotations and because of the way it works, the medical registrars were on a slightly different schedule than the anaesthesia registrars. But very early on when I heard that um, they were looking into this rotation, I approached them and I said, I'd love to go to Alice, and they, they very kindly actually rearranged my training year so I could fit the timing with the medical registrars and because it was only at the time available for medical registrars. So I found myself in Alma Springs sort of towards the end of my training as an ICU registrar and it was fantastic. And I think that just confirmed for me that, you know, I like working in remote austere environments. I love the challenge of it.
2: You know, it's, it's not on my list of places I've been to Alice Springs. I'm a bit
1: jealous. <laughs> it's interesting to hear Susie talk about that. And uh, it it seems, you know, it, you listen to a story such as Susie and, and you feel as though things just seem to drop into place for her. And and how, uh, trainees would think, well, how can that happen for me? And the reason things drop into place for things like Susie is because, of her character and her, uh, commitment to work. And it's the person that she is that so we often say your character is your destiny. So things are much more likely to happen. If you are that, um, uh, engaged, interested, proactive person, uh, you know, things will start to happen for you. And, and Susie is a prime example of that, how things fall into place because she does, uh, is proactive with her career.
2: I think you've got a fan, Susie.
0: Chris- uh, thanks, Chris. That's very <laughs> kind words. And I don't know if everything always falls into place. So I'm, I'm glad it looks like that from the outside.
2: Chris, <laughs> you said characteristics. What characteristics do you think would suit someone if they're going into anesthesia? You because you imagine people would think of surgeons as, oh, you maybe you've got to be sure of yourself and you've probably got to have fairly dexterous dexterous hands if you want to do microsurgery what, what sort of characteristics to do, what does a good anesthetist have Was
0: that that's for you this?
2: that's for you Susie
0: oh, okay. oh you both
2: I would ask I'm going to get both of you to have this I imagine you might have different thoughts on what make what makes a good anesthetist
0: I think there's this perception that to be an anesthetist a good anesthetist you have to be you know, super meticulous, super diligent, super organised. You have to be very structured and deep in your thinking. You have to have a penchant for seeking details, for knowing specifics of things. You know, this is, I think, what the primary exam teaches you. And I think it's been interesting since, since I think, leaving training and doing work with leadership in anaesthesia We really find it it takes all sorts. You know, you can have the slightly more, you know, bigger picture thinkers, the more abstract thinkers, the more imaginative thinkers. And, yes, you have to be, absolutely, when you're with a patient, you have to be diligent and careful, of course. But you don't have to necessarily be that personality type. Um, And that's what I really enjoy when I see people coming out the other end of the training program, when they feel like they don't have to fit that mould. Um, and and seeing that actually this, the person that they are is is perfectly suited to being an anaesthetist.
2: Dr. Bolton, would you would you concur? A on for seeking details, and you don't necessarily need to fit the mould. Do, do you think there
1: is a mould for anaesthetists? Uh, look, I, I think Susie's absolutely correct. There's there's clearly the scientific side that you need to be excellent. in in your knowledge and your application of the science of anesthesia but then the art of anesthesia given that every person is different it makes sense that anaesthetists can come in all shapes and different sizes uh, in terms of their personalities Uh, and so I think Susie's right it is delightful to see Um, the different people coming out that can provide different things to different people in different ways. And I I think that is a beauty. I don't think that's specific for anesthesia. I I wish that we saw less of these molds in the other specialties as well and had more of these uh, eclectic characters coming out in the other training programs. But I think anesthesia is very tolerant and promotes um, a variety and certainly in my career, I've been fortunate to have been um, in a stream paediatric anaesthesia where characters uh, were were celebrated.
0: I'll say it also is quite intense our training program in that we do spend a lot of one on one time with uh, with our consultants during the training, and I, I don't think many other specialties have that. So. In in that in building those relationships, I do think you also build certain levels of people skills, and you really get to work with a variety of personalities.
2: I always rather like the cartoons and memes you saw about uh, the different medical specialties. What do they say about the anesthetists? Great
1: people, just great
2: people,
0: <laughs> the best. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Perhaps we'll turn now to the clinico legal uh, side of things, uh, Chris. You've been working for MIPS for a while in as a clinical legal advisor. What are some of the common things that you hear from our members for the issues or trouble they get themselves into that are directly related to anaesthesia?
1: Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, and it's a big question. But if we were to look specifically at the events that get people into trouble, uh, as with all of the uh, specialties, its communication is the basis of nearly all problems. People worry about the risk of damaging teeth, about the uh, risk of a failed intubation, etc. but they make up the minority of the problems. Teeth would be the most prominent one, but problems arise with poor communication. That's where I think that people can probably improve their risk profile by focusing more on communication. With the teeth, why is that so common? Yeah, teeth, teeth are, um, <laughs> obviously, they're at the gateway to the airway and uh, they are at risk. We use uh, uh, rigid implements to put through a rigid circle. Um, so if care is not taken and the teeth are often in poor shape, uh, then damage can occur.
2: Susie, have you observed any you know, issues amongst the ASA members who speak to you about communication or other sort of professional ethical issues that they've faced in their roles?
0: Yeah, so we, we do receive updates from our members about professional issues and where it might be different from the ones that you see is that they're not always to do with patients, that often communication issues between staff members or within a department can also cause significant problems. And that's one of the things that we do is uh, get involved in some of those conversations sometimes.
2: I imagine that's still something our Clinico Legal advisors deal with, is a collegiate sort of issues and complaints you have dealt with some of those in your time chris
1: yeah again yes you're right communications obviously not just with patients it's with uh, other members of the staff and and not just colleagues often with uh, well, obviously we communicate with all levels of the uh, hospital hierarchy and again that's where the troubles arise and as a medical defence organisation we're always there we always encourage People to ring, so that they, even if it's just to use us as a sounding board. Um, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, we're there. Um, so that's one of the services that uh, a good medical defence organisation will offer is is just that sounding board.
2: Susie, I've heard that anaesthetists can be at higher risk for their mental and well-being, and that there's a rumour. I've said I don't know how true it is. You tell me. They've got good access to the drugs. They know how to use them. And uh, this presents a greater likelihood for substance abuse than other doctors. Is there any truth in that?
0: Yeah, it is certainly an occupational hazard amongst anesthetists and not just anesthetists. When we look at the global stats, it's um, probably all theatre stuff are overrepresented amongst doctors with substance misuse disorders it's hard to tell looking purely at australian data both because we're a small population and the way the data is recorded and reported but certainly looking at the bigger populations like the us i think amongst the physicians that undergo rehabilitation then theater staff and anesthetists are certainly up there in numbers
2: Chris, in in general terms, for the calls you're receiving as a clinical legal advisor, are you dealing with
1: any uh, or dealing with many cases that involve substance abuse? Yeah, look, we only see the tip of the iceberg and that is when it's all gone bad and it's they've either been caught or got themselves in a situation where they need to self-report. Very much the tip of the iceberg because I think people understand that mental health and substance abuse go hand in hand and what... I think we need to be fairly generous in what we described as substance abuse because if you're having two, three, four glasses of wine at night, I think that we could all could be looking at that and saying, well, that's probably a bit much. So, medico legally, we only see the tip, unfortunately. Mm. And on the mental health side, I imagine bullying harassment
2: is significant. Is, is that an issue that, you know, this specialty is any different from the others? I know the surgeons have been criticised publicly for bullying and harassment, and I haven't really heard much that that same problem exists amongst anaesthesia. Susie, are you aware of if there is any concern in the industry about it?
0: I, I think it's been good. There's been more attention on it, and I think there's been some sort of murmurings of concern. I think there's also been, you know, there's, there's also got to be some natural justice that's been that has to be played out. So. I know, for example, of, an ex- of a time when an anaesthetist was accused of being a bully and to them it was just complete and utter shock and really just good feedback for them that their style of communication wasn't appropriate. You know, I, I do worry that it is more common in surgery and I think this is where... You know, if if someone is being bullied or harassed and they're not feeling like they can go to someone within their specialty for support, they can certainly go outside. And anaesthetists, you know, we witness a lot of things in theatre, and I certainly know of a few anaesthetists who've supported surgical registrars through episodes of bullying and harassment.
1: Chris, I I think that anaesthesia has been partly protected from that because of the 50 50 split in trainees with males and females. I think that. Uh, has been a little bit protective but unfortunately in any workplace there will be people who behave badly and uh, that line of what is feedback and what is harassment is a difficult one and I think it's important that people are aware it can happen, it can happen to anyone at any time and and there are places to go, there are people you can go and talk to about it.
2: Mm. I mean including MIPS too, we do provide some assistance for people who contact us who are in those sort of situations. So just to iterate what we said about substance abuse, I mean, call um, call MIPS if you are experiencing these difficulties. There are a range of professionals and our staff, including uh, legal professionals, and then also our clinical legal advisors you who know, have both the legal and the clinical perspective, such as chris and of course uh, we're lucky enough on
1: mipsa staff to have an anesthetist on staff we couldn't staff every single specialty but anesthesia is one of the ones we have i guess if i could just cut in there i guess the other thing about your medical defense organization is that we are not bound by mandatory reporting so it, perhaps it's a less threatening forum to ring into uh if there's an issue with substance uh use it doesn't have to be abuse maybe use um so it, perhaps it's a little less threatening and advice and guidance perhaps is a little bit easier to, to obtain.
2: I've got one last question for both of you. Uh, Susie, perhaps you can answer this first. If you were talking to, say, a PGY3 doctor today and they wanted some advice about what they could do right now to, to get into the accredited program, what would be sort of your points that you would tell them? they should execute as soon as they can
0: i get this question quite a fair bit (laughs) so it could very well be today that i actually we've just had interviews so maybe maybe not today but maybe a few months ago i was probably being asked this question a bit you know i used to not encourage cv buffing and i still don't encourage cv buffing for the sake of it but i do think to nowadays get on the program they do need to look at the breadth of their cv so you nowadays do need to do some sort of short course be it an ALS or an APLS or some some sort of short course you almost certainly need to have done some sort of research and I would suggest doing an audit because they're quicker and easier to achieve in a a sensible time frame and then you just also need to be you know get the good referees that support you clinically so and and do those things that you know I used to say you should focus on so Come to work, see your patients, make sure you've you know commit, vow to present your patients. Have have a crack at describing what your anaesthesia plan might be. You know, whilst you're in theatre, ask some sensible questions about what's going on with the anaesthetic and also, but, you know, show that clinical judgment that, you know, that, you know, as the anaesthetist is about to press the emergency buzzer, that's not the time to ask questions. And I'm, you know, obviously exaggerating it there. And, and I think it's also good to, you know, I've, I think the ones that I've mentored or been referees for have had similar interests. And so it's good if you, if you find, I'm not talking, I'm talking about professional interests there. So, you know, obviously the ones who, want to go into global health or you know have an interest in doing military work all that sort of stuff and and that getting that vested interest in them and then the other thing I also encourage especially as I say the ones that um, I'm being a referee for is to think about applying interstate because there's some fantastic jobs interstate I spent a few years working in Darwin so big plug to my mates up in Darwin but you know I, I say if you're really serious about anesthesia you really are interested in global health then you know the XYZ hospitals around the country Are really good to think about applying to if you can't get you know in your state. Think about moving interstate into these hospitals.
2: Chris, what do you think? Is there something you could add
0: to
1: that? Yeah, I think I think obviously that's absolutely correct. I think the only thing I'd add is that a lot of it boils down to who you know, not what you know. And if you are seen as being a a communicator, a good communicator, and a active and participant within a department uh, who has a positive influence so on other people. I think that is also seen as a, an a important thing. So if you've got two candidates that look exactly on paper, but one is that contributor that proactive contributor a department who gets on well with people gets on well with um, um those above and below them uh i think that's very important so I, I it gets back to focusing on communication skills and being active in the environment you're in
0: i also think you have to be i didn't you might have missed that point there chris but that um being a you know an active clinician so you know taking that interest in your patients and taking, I think, taking the initiative. So especially when you're junior, it feels a bit, I think, daunting to propose an anaesthetic plan to the anaesthetist that you might be working with. But I, I always look really, you know, I, I always think really highly of that when I see that. And you know, I like it when they're saying, oh, you know, I've already put the cannula in or do you think I should do... This bigger cannula, you know, it's, it takes. It shows me that you've got an active interest in trying to acquire new skills and acquire new knowledge. I must say, in
1: my early training years, I used to carry a book of anesthesia with me uh, into theatre. I don't know what it was, but it, it was a book of anesthesia. And then I would rehash the conversation that I'd had with the consultant the day before and preface it by saying, "I was reading last night." and And so, carrying a book and then and then repeating verbatim what the consultant the day before had told me, it made me look as though I was I was a proactive trainee. It was a, That was my intern uh, strategy. Did it work? I got there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great strategy, Great strategy. <laughs>
1: Can you tell us, Susie, just tell us a little bit more about the breadth of its activities and and you know it's it's raison d'être.
0: So our motto is support, represent and educate. So we're here, as I said before, to support an I've heard the term from cradle to grave. I've had a, a few colleagues pass away recently, so don't like using that term. But you know, from the start of your career right through to when you think your career is finished, but you still have those important professional connections into retirement. Obviously we we play a big role in advocacy and one of our big biggest issues at the moment is health worker safety in light of the coronavirus pandemic and things like fit testing and adequate respiratory protection programs and things like that. Uh, The ASA is 87 years old. So it's one of the oldest medical organisations in Australia. And when it first was formed, anaesthetists were, and I I quote this from a history book, but were seen as the handmaidens to the surgeons. And that's what gave rise to the ASA. And you know that that need to stand up and be accounted as a professional a group of professionals and 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 we still maintain that so we're here to represent the profession but also to support and educate and i think it it is you know it's anecistus doing work for anaesthetist. so it's 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 peer to peer and an incredibly supportive environment
2: okay thanks a lot for joining us today guys <laughs>
0: thanks chris
2: pleasure lovely to see you Suze.
0: lovely to see you too
2: That was Dr. Susie New and Dr. Chris Bolton. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Mask. Don't forget you can access other episodes and a variety of on-demand CBD options through the MIPS website. We hope you're able to join us again.